Okay, so I was born in Detroit, Michigan, right? And when I was a little kid, we moved out to the middle of nowhere. We got a big plot of land and called ourselves farmers. And on the first day of school, I stood by the side of the road waiting for this rickety school bus to stop. I had that hopeful first day of school feeling you get, my little backpack, my little trapper keeper, you know. I was ready to go first day. The bus stopped, packed with screaming kids, hollering, noisy. I stepped on, looked down the row of seats, and everything got quiet. Real, real quiet. (laughs) See, we were the only black folk for miles around. Every seat could hold two people, and I went to sit down right next to this little toe-headed boy, and he spit in the seat right where I was going to sit. I kept walking down the aisle, and every open seat, someone spit, daring me to sit in it. And the bus driver's like, hurry up, hurry up and sit yourself down. And I kept walking further and further toward the back of the bus. I'm running out of options. Big, big globules of saliva they're waiting for me in every seat. I said, sit yourself behind one of them seats. And I get to the very back of the bus, the very last seat, and there's a little girl about my age sitting with her backpack in the empty seat. And I can't turn back around. I can't turn back around. I do not know what to do. And the little girl moves her backpack, slides it to the floor, And I sit down. I don't say a word. She doesn't say a word to me. We ride. And the next day, I walk past the leering, the shouting, the hollering to the back of the bus. And Mary Jo, I know her name is Mary Jo now. She moves her bag. And I sit down. Every day, we never speak. Just ride the bus. Then, about halfway through the year, they switch up the bus route. And instead of the last one picked up, I'm the first. So for the first time ever, I get on an empty bus. Force of habit, I go back to my old seat. And we ride. Picking people up. And you know, this is rural Michigan. Nobody's rich, but some of us are really poor. Really poor. And if you are a really poor family living in some mobile home in Michigan... In the middle of winter, there's a good chance your water pipes would freeze. Not enough insulation. And this means when you're getting ready for school, you don't have any water. No bathing. And when you're in this situation, you've got two choices. Neither of them good. You can go on to school, stinking of whatever chores you had to do around your little farm. Or you could try to mask the smell under cheap perfume. And this day... Mary Jo went the perfume route, and when she got on the bus, the stink was like someone slapped you in the face. It smelled like rotting flowers pressed on top of barn filth. Everyone started hollering. She kind of held up her head and looked toward the back of the bus. I looked right at her. She looked right back at me, and I turned my head away as if I didn't know her. I hoped she would get the hint. I hoped she wouldn't come all the way back because it would just come to me. I wanted her to sit with someone else. I just wished everyone would stop screaming. Then she was there, looking at my seat with my backpack blocking her, just looking. And for a moment, for a long moment, I looked straight ahead. Then I was so ashamed. I was so ashamed of myself, I moved my backpack to the ground, and she sat down right next to me, and we rode. And we didn't say anything. 
the bus kids turned around to hold their noses and scream at her. And they screamed at me sitting next to her. And you know, for the first time, I didn't care. I didn't care what anybody thought. I didn't care if they punched or spit or swung. I didn't care. I just wanted to say something to her. I wanted to say, I'm sorry. Instead, I said, Hey, my name's Glenn. And Mary Jo said, I know your name. And we talked. Two little kids in the back of the bus. We just talked. Today, from PRX and NPR, Snap Judgment proudly presents Absolution. Real stories about real people extending the hand of forgiveness. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment. Forgiveness, mercy, pardon, absolution. It's not like you're going to make things better, no. No, it's not like you're going to stuff your crimes back into the bottle because everything's out there. Everybody knows what you did and they forgive you anyway. But what if they would rather not? The musician Tao Nguyen tells us a story about her grandmother. I'm Tao, Tao Nguyen, and I am uh, a songwriter and a musician. My relationship with my grandmother when I was growing up was one of one-sided nurturing. She was always around, but we never really talked. I didn't know how to engage with her. She immigrated from Vietnam when I was about five years old and moved in with us, the tiniest woman on earth. My grandmother, along with my mother, they've always been very supportive of my music. They would always encourage me. You know, she's the reason I wear makeup and a dress on stage. <clears throat> and my grandmother would say ridiculous things like, you look poor up there. No one wants to watch a poor person on stage. <laughs> You know, and at that time I said, well, I am kind of poor, so. But um, eyeliner's cheap. Just a couple of years ago, I heard some rumors that my grandmother hadn't spoken to my grandfather in the years before he died. No one in my family knew how long the silence had lasted, or even really what all the details were. Everyone had assumed that my grandmother had forgiven my grandfather on his deathbed. In true form, no one in my family, no one talks about anything besides what we're going to eat next. There's a high premium placed on saving face and keeping up appearances, so I figured I would find out for myself. I sit down with my grandmother and I ask, can you tell me about life with my grandfather? He was very generous with other people. He would roast a pig and share it with the whole neighborhood. We didn't have enough plates or bowls for everyone to eat, but they came over anyway. Everyone knew him, everyone respected him, and everyone heard him when he swore at me. They would say, here it comes again, so obscene, so dirty. The whole time she's talking to me in this interview, she's not making any eye contact. You know, she just stares straight ahead, and she's so matter-of-fact. Was he always mean to you from the beginning? He was mean to me for years. He referred to me as a whore. The whore doesn't know how to be grateful, whore this, whore that. I ignored him. I never said one word in return. Socially and culturally, there were bounds. And, you know, given the time period, she couldn't divorce him. She didn't really have that power. I've been told before, the husband rules all. The home is his domain, and he can do whatever he will. Did he have mistresses? He had everything. He had it all, all kinds. 
You took care of everything, the cooking and the cleaning? Everything. Then I stopped talking to him, and he would just swear at me. Say what you want to say to me. I will never say anything back. And I didn't say anything to him for 20 years. So because he had nothing kind to say to her and she had nothing to say to him, my grandmother didn't speak to him for the last 20 years of his life. And, you know, this was the one way she could fight back. And then he got sick. In the end, he went into the hospital to die. By then, he couldn't speak very well. His tongue went loose. He could only ooh, ah. And my grandfather was a Catholic. And um, one of my aunts, who is Catholic, brought the priest in as soon as they realized that he didn't have much longer. The priest was brought in to perform the last rites. It was to ask for, for his forgiveness so that he could proceed on to heaven. So the priest talked to me. He asked me, why are you so upset with him? What has happened that you wouldn't speak to him for 20 years? Please tell me so I can continue with the ceremony. If you don't tell me, then I can't ask the Virgin Mary for forgiveness. But I didn't tell him. I didn't say anything. The priest kept saying, if you don't tell me, then he can't be released. I said to him, that's all, Father. That is enough. If you ripped my mouth open, I still wouldn't talk. Let him bear his sin. Let him go under with that sin. He took that sin against me with him. To watch her state very plainly that she intended for her husband to go to hell was incredibly powerful. I, it was weird to glimpse another side of this gentle, quiet, perpetually smiling woman. I'm so proud of her for this fierceness. She used silence to assert herself as opposed to just reinforcing her submission. Um, she used it as a statement. What is that? It's a phone with a recorder. I've been recording you for a radio show. People will laugh. I don't want people to laugh at our family. No one will laugh. There's no shame. There's no shame in this story. Thank you, Tao. All the music in that piece was composed by Tao Wen, most of it specifically for this story, because that's how we roll. The other two songs are from her album, We Brave, Bee Stings and All. We'll have a link on our site, snapjudgment.org. Tao is currently performing at Radiolab's live show and is working on a new album coming out soon. That piece was produced by Stephanie Fu. You're listening to Snap Judgment, the Absolution episode. Don't go anywhere. Snap Judgment will return in just a moment. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Absolution episode. Today, we're exploring stories when one person, for good or ill, right or wrong, is asked to extend absolution, forgiveness, pardon to another, to wipe clean the stain of wrongdoing. And our next story, from Snap Judgment favorite Kyle Bowen, asked the question, can you give absolution to someone who doesn't even want it? I can't let you in, I told the woman standing at the door of the funeral home that afternoon, and I could see the desperation on her face as she tried to remain strong against the oppression she was facing for the crime of loving a woman, a woman she had loved exclusively for the previous 25 years. They had been a married couple in every important way, except by law. Because in the days before domestic partnerships, it didn't matter how much you loved that person the same gender as you, you were never their next of kin. The official next of kin of the dead woman lying in the casket in the chapel of the funeral home where I worked was her mother, who hated her daughter's lifestyle and despised her life partner. Do not let that woman into the viewing or into the funeral, she told us. And she had every legal right to tell us that. We had to abide by her instructions. And so I told the woman standing at the door of the funeral home that afternoon, I'm sorry, I can't let you in. I understand, she said, it was the same way at the hospital. She lowered her head and turned to leave. But one of the reasons I became a mortician was to allow people the opportunity to grieve. So I said, wait, her mother is with her now and probably will be till just before nine o'clock when we close down. You know, it's funny, sometimes I get so busy doing paperwork in the office, I forget to lock the door till 9.20, 9.30, and don't even turn the lights out until 10 o'clock. Someone could actually come in at 9.10 and be in the chapel until almost 10 o'clock, and I wouldn't even know they were there. She gave me a slight smile and a nod, and she left. At five minutes of 9 o'clock that night, the mother of the dead woman left the funeral home. But... I was in the office busy doing paperwork. I thought I heard the bell of the door about 10 minutes later, but I'll, I'll check it in a minute. Finally, when I did go out to check the door about 30 minutes later, I thought I heard a voice coming from the chapel. It was a voice of love, a voice of sorrow, a voice of even anger. I re- distinctly recall hearing the words, I am so mad at you for dying. It's funny how the air conditioning can play tricks with my hearing. But when I finally did go in to check the chapel about 20 minutes later, there was nobody there except a dead woman in a casket. I went into the chapel, closed the casket, turned off the lights, and began my walk home. And I was reminded that night that sometimes the most important part of saying, I love you, is saying goodbye. The amazing Kyle Bowen is a graduate of the San Francisco College of Mortuary Science. He's worked as a mortician for over 15 years. Kyle now writes and performs in Chico, California. That story was produced by Jamie DeWolf, Anna Sussman, and Renzo Gorio. What if someone did the unspeakable, the horrific? Could you forgive them? And would you want to? Our next story comes from Eva Kaur. 
She grew up in a small village in Germany in the only Jewish family in town. And this is in the 1930s. Yes, Eva Kor is a Holocaust survivor. For Eva Kor, the Holocaust will never really end. It's tattooed on her. My daughter came home one day. She said to me, Mommy, Mrs. Baker doesn't have a number on her arm. How come you have a number? She's had the tattoo on her arm since she was 10 years old, when she and her family were forced into a cattle train and dumped at Auschwitz. Within 30 minutes after stepping down from the cattle car, which we traveled in for four days, my whole family was ripped apart on the selection platform. Once we were processed, we also were immediately tattooed. I was not a very cooperating victim. And my twin sister said, I beat the Nazi who was holding my arm. I was tattooed with the number A-7063. My twin sister became capital A-7064. Eva and her twin, Miriam, were marched to a barrack full of twins. We became part of a group of children, all twins, age 2 to age 16. There were 13 sets of little girls. The group, later known as the Mengele twins, were used by the Nazi doctors for experimentation. They provided an ideal scientific set, a guinea pig with a perfectly matched control. They wanted to study germs, diseases, and drugs. I was injected with deadly germs, and Miriam and I were separated for five weeks in Auschwitz. And right then and there, I made a silent pledge that I will do everything and anything within my power to make sure that Miriam and I did not die. Determination kept Eva and her sister alive for nine months. And then she believed her freedom had come. It was late in the afternoon when a woman ran into the barrack yelling at the top of her voice, We are free. We are free. I stood there for a while when I noticed at a distance some people, they were clad in white camouflage raincoats and they were smiling. They didn't look like the Nazis. We ran up to them. They gave us chocolate, cookies and hugs. And that was my first day to realize that we were free. That my little promise that Miriam and I would walk out of this camp alive became a reality. But that didn't mean that I was free from the pain that the Nazis inflicted upon me. I remember talking to one of my friends. They said, how do you feel about Germany? I said, I hate Germany. I hate the Nazis. I hate Germans. I don't want to talk about it. One of them said to me, so what are you going to do about all that? You seem to be very forceful in your hatred. I said to myself, but I'm not going to do anything about that. There was also permanent physical damage from the experiments, and Eva's twin sister, Miriam, got sicker and sicker as the years went on. Miriam's situation was critical. There was something in Miriam's body that the doctor said that if they could find out what Miriam was injected with, that maybe they could understand. I could not let Miriam die in Auschwitz. I couldn't let her die here. And I was going to do everything within my power to save her life. Eva was determined again, this time to find any information on what they injected into her sister. I was trying to look for our files. I have went, gone to Germany. I have gone to Auschwitz, look in the archive. There is nothing more that I could find. She located a doctor named Dr. Munch. There was a Nazi doctor from Auschwitz, and I figured that maybe he could help me with that information. And he agreed to meet Eva at his home in Germany. For the first time, she felt her determination wilting. I was scared out of my wits because what I remembered about the Nazi doctors, I did not want to experience again. I couldn't rest. I couldn't sleep. Every nerve in my body was rebelling against what I was doing. 
but I couldn't really back down. And second, I was really curious if I could learn something about what was done to us. When I met with Dr. Munch, the most surprising thing to me was that he was kind, considerate, and his generosity and humanity was not what I expected from a Nazi doctor. For instance, we were sitting outside on metal chairs. He ran into the house five times, coming back each time with a pillow. He said, I want to make sure that you are comfortable. And on his porch in Germany, Dr. Munch described his own scars. Well, he told me that Auschwitz was looming very high in his nightmares. I think that made him human, and also his treatment of me made him very human. But the doctor had no information on the experiments done to Eva and her sister. So instead, Eva asked him to provide a signed declaration of the atrocities he did partake in, and presented at the 50th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. She wanted to be able to prove to any Holocaust deniers and revisionists that what happened to her was real. I saw to myself the only way that I can prove that what I am saying is so is to have a document signed not by a survivor, not by a liberator, but actually by a Nazi who witnessed it. There are deniers who say the Holocaust didn't happen. If I ever met a revisionist face to face, I could take that document and shove it in their face. I wanted to thank this Nazi for his willingness to bear witness. I wanted to give him a meaningful gift. So when I was cooking, doing the laundry, driving the car, I kept asking myself, how can I thank a Nazi? It took 10 months before the following simple idea. How about a letter of forgiveness from me to Dr. Munch? Oh, gosh. Let's see. If you pull that drawer out on the top, yeah, I do have them here. Yes, I presented it at the ruins of the gas chamber in Auschwitz with Dr. Munch and my children and Dr. Munch's children. Fifty years after liberation from Auschwitz, I, Eva Moses Kor, in my name only, give this amnesty as to survivors and the public. Look up to the skies. Here in Auschwitz, the souls of millions of victims are with us, and I am saying with them as witnesses, enough is enough. Fifty years is more history. It's time to heal our souls. It's time to forgive, but never forget. It is time to the persecution. I hope in some small way to send the world a message of forgiveness. When I discovered that I had the power to forgive, it seemed simple, yet it was extremely empowering for me. In her letter, Eva forgave not only Dr. Munch, but all the Nazi doctors, even though she was never able to discover what had been injected into her sister. And despite Eva's determination, Miriam eventually passed away. A handful of Mengele twins remain alive today, and they're not pleased with Eva. My fellow survivors, they call me a traitor. They say she's forgetting the past. She says she would if she could, but she knows she can't. Some children would ask me, why don't I remove my tattoo? Then I said I would remove it. Everything that happened when that tattoo was done would be removed also, and life would return to what it was before. For me, my tattoo on my arm is a badge of courage. I stood up to the Nazis when they tattooed me. It's part of me. It's my original artifact that I carry with me at all times. Two years after her sister died, Eva opened up a Holocaust museum in her small town in Indiana. I keep telling my fellow survivors, if somebody by forgiving is forgetting, how on earth is it that I spent 200 days at the museum where I meet with children, I meet with groups. She found the museum and telling her story of forgiveness was healing. But in the middle of the night, 
she got a call from the police. The museum had been firebombed and burned to the ground. In the drizzling rain outside the torched museum, Eva told reporters that she'd had better days, but she'd had much worse. How do I feel about that today? I have forgiven whoever the person or the people were, not because they deserve it. And this is what I want to always make sure people understand. Not because the perpetrators deserve my forgiveness. Forgiveness is self-healing, self-liberation, self-empowerment. I deserve If you were concerned that Eva's museum was lost forever, fret not. The good people of Indiana and folks from across the country came together after hearing news of the fire. They rebuilt a bigger and better museum, which stands today. Find out more about it on our website, snapjudgment.org, along with some remarkable photos of Eva and her sister as Auschwitz was freed. And Eva, thank you very much. The piece was produced by Anna Sussman. Snap Judgment returns. Someone is going to steal the clothes off our back when Snap Judgment, the absolution episode, continues. Back to Snap Judgment, the Absolution episode from PRX and NPR. My name is Glenn Washington, and we're featuring stories about people asking for or extending the hand of forgiveness because you never know when you might need it. This next story is from Snap Judgment legend Jack McCarthy. It's about how he discovered how much something meant to him when it was gone. One night when I got home from work, my wife told me my red sweatshirt had been stolen off the clothesline. And I get mad the way you do when someone takes your stuff. As if there were a hundred degrees of anger. Think of one degree as when the remote control doesn't work right away and you have to lean a little forward and zap it one more time. Toward the high end of the scale is, oh, 95, where you want to kill someone but you'd still like to lay the groundwork for getting away with it. At 99, you no longer care if you get away with it. I don't know what a hundred is like. I've never experienced a hundred. Maybe spontaneous combustion. In the moment it took to let my sweatshirt go, what I was feeling was maybe 30 degrees of anger. Over the 25 bucks, the 10 days it would take to mail order a replacement. But seconds later, I had shot to 99, all over a $25 sweatshirt, red. This was an inside job. This tog had been taken by someone in the neighborhood. 
Okay, I can deal with that. We're still simmering at 30. My second thought was that a sweatshirt is something you wear outdoors, not in. And what with my jogging, walking the kids to the library, etc., I spend a lot of time out on the street in this neighborhood. Those things being so, eventually I will bump into the kid who stole my sweatshirt, and he'll be wearing it. The next scene plays out like this in the war room of my cerebellum. I assert, that's my sweatshirt. And the kid makes some smart answer. And I don't know what to say. And bingo, straight to 99. So I have to kill him. This residue stayed with me several months. Till one day I was jogging Ashmont Street and a young man that I'd always liked walked by. Hi, Mr. McCarthy. Hi, John. When I was three or four steps past, I stopped and thought, that was my sweatshirt. And I remembered the winter John's crazy mother kicked him out, and he was sleeping in the cellars of Three Deckers in the neighborhood, and he must have been cold. I didn't even turn around. I just went back to my jogging feeling about 10 pounds lighter. Snap Judgment has much love for Jack McCarthy, veteran, original, seasoned, legendary performer, poet, and storyteller. Thank you very much. Jack currently resides in Seattle, Washington, and Jack's story was produced by Jamie DeWolf and Renzo Gorio. I like to think that even under horrific circumstances, that I have the generosity of spirit that makes forgiveness possible. Well, some people have that notion tested, and this absolution can come at a very high price. Snap Stephanie Fu has this story from the Arena family. This is a story about a family that believes in sticking together. The Arena family, grandparents, uncles, cousins, all lived on the same block in Killeen, Texas. We were all tight. We used to have uh, neighborhood parties out here where the streets were pretty much blocked off and the kids were just hanging out talking and, you know, we playing all night. That's John Arena. He and his brother Michael were especially close with his little cousin, Stephanie. Me, Stephanie, and my brother used to do a lot of video games, Legos, play with cars outside. But all of a sudden, the family split. His cousin Stephanie's parents went through an ugly divorce. When all these things started happening with her mom and her dad, we didn't see a lot of them anymore. That's because Stephanie's mother, John's aunt, took Stephanie and her brother and went on the run with them across the country. The family didn't hear anything about them for years. Until one day, when John was a senior in high school, his father, Robert, got a letter instructing him to bring his sons to the police station that day. I'm Robert Arena, John and Michael's dad. I didn't know what it was about or anything. And I figured we ain't done anything wrong. So I took my kids down and my kids had never had a record or anything. I met the officer outside the police department and she wanted to interrogate him. The detective started by interrogating John. It's just me and her were in there. And that's when she started telling me these stories. She started talking to me about what Stephanie had said. The detective explained that nine-year-old Stephanie had accused John of molesting her. She said that, uh, that I sexually assaulted her. So I was, like, confused. I was like, what is going on? I didn't know anything about these things. I'm, I'm shocked. I'm, I'm, like, I don't know. I don't know what to do. John says he felt pressured by the detective to sign a confession. She said that if I said I did these things, then the kids would get help so they, they can get better. So he wrote and signed a confession saying that he alone was responsible for abusing Stephanie. Not once did I think that what I was doing was actually getting myself in trouble. I mean, I wanted to make sure my cousin was all right. The detective brought John's brother Michael in directly after him. But before Michael went into the room, John told him not to say anything. John was just a kid trying to protect his family. Meanwhile, what John didn't know was that Stephanie was trying to do the exact same thing, protect her family. 
Here's Stephanie. I'm Stephanie Gibson. I'm 22. Rena's my maiden name. My mom told me and my brother to tell people that John and Michael had touched us inappropriately. She just said, say that they touched you here, they touched you there. She just told us that if we didn't say these things, she was going to go to jail. Stephanie's mom had taken her children out of state illegally. The arenas believe that when she was confronted by the police, she told them that Stephanie was being molested by her cousins in order to avoid jail time for herself. John says his attorney told him that he should plead guilty to save his brother. They told him, If you take the plea bargain, they'll drop the charges on your brother. So John pled guilty to take the fall for Michael. In court, Stephanie testified against her cousins. At John or Michael's hearing, I remember clutching like some stuffed animal. You're in a courtroom, it's filled with people. You know, you're saying all these things and you know, you just, you're trying to protect your family. No, I didn't know what I was saying. I understood what jail meant, you know, when I understood that I loved my mom and I didn't want that to happen to her. So of course, you know, I lied for her. Robert, John's dad, couldn't believe her testimony, especially seeing the way that she acted around John and Michael after the hearing. Stephanie, when she was that young, we were outside the courtroom, and she's waving at Mikey and John, you know, hi, how you doing? <laughs> like this, and uh, I couldn't figure this out. In the end, the charges against Michael were not dropped. John got seven years, and Michael got 25 years. The boy's father was crushed. I guess ignorance of the law is no excuse, but I didn't understand the law, so, and it just went boom, boom, boom. And next thing I know, my kids were locked up. And you got to imagine, 15 years old, a chance of getting somewhere in football, had a scholarship going for him. I, I mean, the kid was... John and Michael were sent to San Saba State School, a juvenile correctional facility. I mean, I was mad. I was, I was really aggravated because it seemed like forever. Did you see Michael at all? Uh, in San Saba once in a while. What did you guys talk about? Well, we can't. We would just see each other pass by. We'd actually get in trouble for that. Eventually, Stephanie's father obtained custody of her. That's when she started to understand the consequences of her actions. A few years later, I think I was 10, 11, I'd asked about how uh, Robert and Betty were doing, and my dad was said something along the lines of, you know, not so well since, you know, their kids are in jail. I think that was the first realization of what I had done. You know, I started to get an understanding for the things that I had said and the repercussions. For a long time, I, I thought, you know, John and Mike were going to hate me. I got letters from Stephanie. All it was telling me was that she was sorry and she apologized. You know, she didn't mean for me and my brother to go to jail. Of course I had felt bad about what had happened, and of course I wanted to change what had happened because they were in there for no reason. So Stephanie decided to recant her statement, even though she could have faced up to 10 years in jail for perjury. I told him then, and I'll tell him now, you know, if that's what I have to go through to undo what I did, then I'll do it. You know, no hesitation. I mean, it, does that scare me? Of course it does. But the prosecutors argued that Stephanie's new testimony was unconvincing. We've gone through several court hearings, appeals, over and over and over again. You know, I've recanted my statement, and it, it doesn't matter because nothing ever happens. That's their job, is to hear cases and, based on evidence, make a judgment and make a fair judgment. And they haven't done that. They refuse to admit that they were wrong. John was released after spending five and a half years in prison. But that wasn't the end. He was still a registered sex offender and he wasn't allowed anywhere near Stephanie until she turned 18. Like, I wasn't even allowed in this yard. I couldn't be around kids, I couldn't be around churches with daycares. With a felony background, you're not getting any job around here. I've applied and I've applied. I've had some callbacks until they start asking me about my crime. But at least John was out. Michael is still in prison. He has served 13 years and has at least seven more to go. I felt bad for him. I mean, if I had the chance, I mean, I would have switched out with him any day. And if I would have never wrote the statement. I mean, I kind of blame myself on a lot. But then again, I was a kid. How can you blame yourself for not knowing something? Which is why John was glad to finally meet Stephanie for the first time since the sentencing. The first time I actually got to meet up with Stephanie and interact with her. And we met up and we talked about the past. She was saying sorry to me and I was saying it's fine, I'm sorry, you know. I've never really been mad at Stephanie. Stephanie's a really good person. She means good. 
I'm not gonna blame a kid anyways. I'm not gonna blame my cousin for something that someone made her say. My family never treated me with any animosity or tried to make me feel guilty or anything like that. Everything was, you know, we try not to let it get down on us. I mean, I know, she knows, my brother knows. We know it didn't happen. We just didn't get to see each other for a long time. John and Stephanie are good friends now. They hang out all the time, and Stephanie often babysits John's kids. I think our, our family is torn apart as it's been. You know, I think we're closer than most families. Yeah, we are. We have to be. At the end of the day, we've all got each other's back. They're either going to kill you or make you stronger. And that's all we have, mm-hmm. is family. Michael Arena sits in jail right now, even as you listen to this. He has at least seven years left on his sentence. Organizations like Texas Voices have taken on Michael's case, but they've been fighting for years now. We'll have a link to Texas Voices on our site, snapjudgment.org. We're going to finish up our Absolution episode in Jackson, Mississippi, where Judge Joe Pygut, he saw a lot of people come through his courtroom. But one guy, one guy really stood out. Many of the people who came before me were not educated, but they were certainly intelligent. Some of them, you dealt with them several times. And uh, the one that comes to mind was, was Willie Earl Pip Dow. He would take what was not his in order to finance his drinking problem. You didn't have to try him. He always pled guilty. And uh, he was a likable person. Oh, somebody do something for me. Come get me. He would write me letters. And he wrote me one time and he said, Judge, I feel like I've been up here long enough this time. And I would appreciate if you'd write the parole board and see if they'll let me out. Well, I did. And they did. And he had been out maybe six weeks when he began drinking and took his friend's watch and the keys to his friend's car. And his friend called the sheriff and told him that he'd been robbed by Willie Earl. But he knew exactly where Willie was. And so the sheriff went there and got him and locked him up. And when he came up before me, of course, he pled guilty again. And I got ready to sentence him. Come around, Mr. Dow. I am so disappointed, I don't know what to say. I have given you another chance, and then you got in trouble again, and I just don't understand you. Well, he said, well, Judge, I'm disappointed in you. Everything in the courtroom got deathly quiet. He said, when I was here four years ago, you were sitting in that same chair, wearing that same robe, making that same speech, I figured a man of your caliber ought to at least be on the Supreme Court by now. Well, I told him, Mr. Dow, I was going to sentence you to five years. But since you are so perceptive, I think I'll just give you three years, which I did. Well, later, when I retired... They had a little ceremony there in the courtroom to hang uh, my portrait. And in walks Willie Earl Pip Dow. And I told him, Mr. Dow, I'm so glad to see you. He said, well, I heard they were going to hang Judge Pigott at the courtroom, and so I didn't want to miss that. (laughs) I I said, well, I'm resigning. How long is it going to be before you're going back to the penitentiary? He said, Judge, you resigning? I'm resigning. I'm a retired just like you. Well, I asked the judge that replaced me and the sheriff of the county to let me know if he got arrested for anything after that. And he did not. He lived about 10 more years and died a, a couple of years ago, but he was such a likable person. Sometimes you, you make friends in strange ways.
Nothing to see here, Judge. Just trying to keep it kosher. That story was stolen from StoryCorps. I mean, it was taken from StoryCorps. StoryCorps is our friend in the storytelling business. And even though they were not at home when we nabbed it, I know they can vouch for us if you just let me make a phone call. Thanks so much to Judge Joe Pigott for sharing your story. To learn more, visit StoryCorps.org. You've been listening to Snap Judgment. But, 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 but this is but the tip of the Snap universe. Full episodes, pictures, movies, all available for you right now at snapjudgment.org. iTunes, Facebook, just look up Snap Judgment. Twitter, our Twitter handle is snapjudgment.org. Did, did you hear that? Snap was produced by myself and the most amazing cast of characters all of whom are in dire need of absolution. Never say sorry for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Jamie DeWolf makes art. Anna Sussman makes fun. Stephanie Fu makes out like a bandit. Pat and C.D. Miller is on the make. Renzo Gorio can't make it. Lindsay Lee Keel can. And Will Urbina is, of course, a made man. Did you ever need some time to yourself? Go to an empty movie theater to watch a show only to have someone ignore all the many, many available seats and sit right directly next to you? Well, don't call the us your friends. That's just the Corporation for Public Broadcasting looking for a little human kindness. Give them some popcorn with extra butter and tell them big thanks from the snap. Ebony and Ivory, they live together in perfect harmony, side by side on a piano keyboard. Oh Lord, just like the public and the media live together in perfect harmony thanks to PRX, the public radio exchange. PRX.org. Now then, you could secretly cash out your wife's retirement fund, put all the money in Beanie Babies only to have the bottom drop out of the Beanie Baby market. And when she asks you to apologize for your reckless behavior, to seek the absolution that only she could provide, you could say, baby, 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 baby. I'm the one that needs the apology because I had felt more love and support. I wouldn't have felt compelled to lose all your money on cute stuff for every creature. Yeah, 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 you could try that. And you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.